Good morning. This is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is episode number 86. Today is the 28th of May, and today we're going to satisfy our curiosity by venturing into room 237. Sure, Mr. Halloran warned us that we had no business going in there, but there's something about that room. And today's guest will help elucidate those mysteries found within. On 42 Minutes this morning, we're meeting Mr. Rodney Asher, the director and editor of the film Room 237, a documentary exploring the signs, symbols, meanings, and metaphors five very different people have discovered with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Mr. Asher is the winner of the 2012 Fantastic Fest Award for Best Director and Documentary and the 2012 IDA Creative Achievement Award for Best Editing. More information about Mr. Asher and his work can be found at his website, RodneyAsher.com. Mr. Asher lives in Los Angeles, California with his talented wife, their clever son, and a beautiful cat. Welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. Sure thing. Thanks, uh... Thanks for having me, Doug. How and when did you conceive of the idea for Room 237? Well, it was a couple of years ago now, um, you know, and it all sort of started from a fateful um, Facebook posting that my friend Tim Kirk, you know, threw on my wall one day, which was, you know, this long, deep, you know, kind of mind-blowing symbolic analysis of The Shining, um, you know, and I've been, you know, intrigued by that film and Kubrick in general for so long that, you know, once I saw, you know, the phrase Secrets of the Shining, I was very ready to believe that there was something very complicated going on in, you know, within that film. And, you know, I had finished a short a short documentary, you know, maybe a year or so before that did pretty good on the um festival circuit, which explored sort of people's um well their childhood phobia of an old um, TV logo, and, you know, before I had finished the article, the idea of exploring, you know, people that, um, you know, sort of people's symbolic take on The Shining seemed like, you know, a, a, a very attractive idea for a follow-up. So the film begins with this big chunk of text, you know, like a rubric. Um, how did you get away with this film copyright-wise? Well, I mean... You know, our movies may be more tension-getting than some, but, you know, where we are, you know, today, um, you know, in documentaries, you know, clear, and, you know, most all of them, you know, um, contain, you know, um, archival footage of one form or another, and, you know, there's different strategies for getting them in your film, you know, and we use those same techniques, that there's some stuff that's licensed, there's some stuff that's public domain, there's, you know, a fair amount of footage that was fair use, and then there's other people who don't hardly ever seem to mention it, original material in the film as well. Sure. <laughs> like the the butler ho- holding the postcard. Exactly. Or or uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick placing the, the Calumet can up on the... <laughs> um, up on the shelf, yeah. Both yeah, yeah. Both of which were shot in my garage. <laughs> But so, as far as like you don't have to pay for the Kubrick footage, do you, or is it just? Well, you don't have, you don't license it from you know, you know from the copyright holders, but you do need to do a fair amount of legal groundwork, you know, to um, um, to certify that you're using it, you know, within 
um, you know, within the standards of the law, and and and, and those bills can add up, up pretty quickly too. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I ask is because I have a a, a number of friends who've made. For years now, they they're called you know we think in terms of synchronicity, but they they uh, deconstruct various actors' whole careers, you know, like from an archetypical standpoint, and create new like they recontextualize the media and make their own narratives. Is this like the Christopher Lloyd um, Zeus thing I might have seen? Did you see that one? That's the one I saw. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's uh by a gentleman named Joe Alexander. Uh, there's a guy in ca- Canada named Jake Kotze who was one of the first people to, to really start doing this, where he was deconstructing DuckTales and showing how it tied into 9-11, and it just blew my mind back then. But so, what's so fascinating for so many members of our community is that you've taken, you know, you've, you've, it's the same language that we're speaking, but you've done it in such a beautiful way, like, uh, you're speaking about the wolf, um, at the door, and you show Jack Nicholson with the axe, and then you show Jack Nicholson as the wolf in the, in that um, werewolf movie. That uh... yeah, well, and, and later on, I realized that I could have used when when they're talking about Jack as a clown in during the forwards backwards scene. I very well could have used you know the footage of him from you know the Tim Burton Batman film of the Joker. Right, right, and so like my friends, we we think you know sure. Actors are often typecast, but they're they're oftentimes they're archetype cast as well, where they have this energetic signature that they tend to bring some mystery to the roles they play. Is there one video that started that whole ball rolling? Because I kind of discovered those pretty late, and you know, pretty late for me, you know, and and, and pretty deep into um, you know two three seven. There's there's a video that Jake and uh, his uh, collaborator Jim did called Star Mummy that seemed to get a lot of attention for a lot of people. That that somehow kind of explained what they were attempting to do. But it, it yeah. is a little freaky for people with yeah, normal ideas of what things, how, how things connect. Yeah, no, I'll be interested to check that one out. Because I'm coming from a different tradition. Who, you know, my influences are more, you know, people like um, Craig Baldwin or Christian Marclay or Bruce Connor or even, you know, um, like the Emergency Broadcast Network. Um, you know, folks who have been using and recontextualizing archival material, um, not strictly, you know, on on a, not not strictly on a symbolic basis, but. Um, I'm sort of experimentally or even maybe rhythmically. Um, so when I just so, so when I discovered that Chris that Christopher Lloyd film, it was it, 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 it was very new and different and interesting to me. Um, and of course, you know where I'm coming, two three seven, you know is very different from those movies since I'm not necessarily the guy you know who had the um, who made a lot of the symbolic connections, but you know, I was interviewing folks who 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 did a lot of the brain work, you know, trying to um, you know, figure out what was really going on in The Shining. Although sometimes, like in that wolf, like in that wolf shot with Jack Nicholson, you know, those would be visual connections that I would make to accompany 
you know, what they were saying literally, I would try to find ways, um, you know, to illustrate those ideas, different, bringing something new to the table. Yeah, yeah. So if the listeners didn't know, Room 237 is constructed out of the interviews and theories of five individuals, Jay Widener, Bill Blakemore, John Fell Ryan, Julie Kearns, and Jeffrey Cox. Um, the end product is very tight, very cohesive. It's a wonderfully structured piece of art. How did you conduct these interviews? They were all done remotely. I would mail people um, digital audio recorders, and then I'd talk to them via Skype so that I could have sort of a lo-fi um, backup of the interview. And they would, you know, operate the recorder and, um, and, and record their own voices and mail it back to me um, when the interview was finished. And, and that short that I had done before, um, the phobia one, the S from Hell, I just used this. I just used the Skype voices, but you know, I decided to go slightly higher end for for two thirty seven. <laughs> well, how much editing do you have to do of that? There, there's a real <laughs> conversational style to the interviews. It, it, they feel so natural. Yeah. Well, you know, what I would kind of do is go through them and. You know, before I cut picture, I would cut sound, and you know, I would sort of find a connected suite of thoughts, and you know, make that a sort of a freestanding sequence. You know, so let's say, um, you know, let's say Jeffrey Cox is talking about the wolf at the door. You know, first I would take the main thrust of of, of that conversation, which would be a couple minutes long, clean it up to take out you know the ums and the you knows, um, or stray digressions that didn't really um, inform on that line of thought, and then it may be that we revisited that a little later, and I would bring back, you know, some thoughts from another part of the interview that were relevant to this train of thought. But yeah, the conversational, natural aspect of the interviews was important to me. I didn't want this, you know, to be one of those documentaries that's built on a thousand sound bites, but more to let people you know, speak at depth, speak, you know, in depth. On the, uh, on the subject at hand. What about other views that didn't make it into the film? Well, I mean, they, there, there was a point, you know, pretty early on when it became clear that um, we weren't going to be able to get everything into this movie. Not only weren't we going to be able to talk about every significant um, idea in The Shining, but we also weren't going to be able to get every idea that our interviewees had, let alone stuff that other people had, you know, the work of other people. So I tried to put moments in the film that would sort of indicate that what we were seeing is just the tip of the iceberg, you know, that there's a moment when um, John Phil Ryan was talking about having done a lot of research on the Internet, and we show you know, screen captures of lots of websites that have been dedicated, you know, to studying The Shining, most of which contain ideas that we don't include, you know, as a way of saying there's much, much more here than what we're able to talk about. And when Julie Kern, and, we're, and there's a point where we're traveling through some of those beautiful maps that Julie Kearns made, and, you know, I made sure that at least glancing that you would see things indicated on the map that, again, we didn't have time to talk about, like the very intriguing idea that she found both the old and the young woman from room 237 seated at the party in the gold room. Oh. 
that's what's so fun about the movie is that so here's the it's like here's this this thing that people have a relationship to but then you have these insiders who actually bring you into the thing and say there are things you've never seen <laughs> let me show them to you um when, when oh, i was yeah. when i was watching it with my wife she said now is one of the voices the director <laughs> and i said no <laughs> <laughs> so where, where where do you end up with your theories do you, do you end up with yeah well you know I, I do have one line near the very end you know why did why would you have made the movie this complicated um but it's been interesting that you know some people think that i am one of the voices um and, you know, for me, I kind of am excited to see people who look at, you know, different people who look at 237 very differently, since the whole idea of it is that different people look at The Shining very differently. So as much as I can see that echoed to 237, I see that, you know, as, as, as something very exciting. Um, but for the most part, you know, my, well, my, well, first off, my theories about The Shining aren't, for the most part, as interesting or as insightful as these folks, which is why this is not one of those movies where, you know, the director narrates. You know, I, I sought out people who had especially interesting things to say, but every once in a while, um, you know, I would, just on the visual track, try to add additional ideas that are my own. You know, not the least of which, well, I mean, you called out the thing for Jack Nicholson playing playing the wolf man in Wolf um, to sort of heighten that one sequence or even, you know, the American Wolf in London stuff, which is also, you know, from similar time period and a Jewish director who's kind of working out sort of Holocaust anxiety within the um, format of a horror film. But there's a moment where Bill Blakemore is talking about um that point of view shot, a camera, the helicopter shot that's following Jack Nicholson's car. Sorry about the garbage truck. Just <laughs> <laughs> across the street. Um, but there's a scene where Bill Blakemore is talking about the beginning and where the sort of a helicopter shot is just following Jack's Volkswagen. And that for him, it felt like a point of view shot. And he was imagining what kind of, what kind of creature, you know, this point of view was personifying, you know, was it a, an alien, was it a demon, was it an angel? And I tried to find footage that would support that, that would visualize it, and that wouldn't cheapen it. And I wound up going with Murnau's, you know, silent version of Faust. Right. But the more I looked into that film, and I, and I found some very, you know, some very evocative, you know, um, creatures. I think they might have been the four horsemen of the apocalypse, like these kind of skeletal horse riders, um, you know, that were incredibly atmospheric and powerful, you know, and cut right in. But the more I looked into that film, the more connections I found. Um, in fact, there's a shot where Faust and um, Mephisto are on a magic carpet and they're sort of flying through the sky, and at one point they come around this rocky, this like this palace on a rocky cliff that's overlooking the water, and the kind of, you know, and this is done with a miniature. And as the camera comes around the cliff, it really looks exactly like the, um, you know, that helicopter shot from The Shining. And you know, there was the story that 
Kubrick looked at most every significant horror film um, before making The Shining, and I have to think that he would have looked at, you know, the silent classic Faust. You know, and there's the moment when Jack Nicholson is at the bar saying, um, you know, I'd sell my soul to the devil for a drink, making a Faustian bargain. Right. You know, so I convinced myself that Faust must have been actually a pretty significant influence on The Shining, and to the best of my research, I couldn't find that documented or mentioned anywhere. So I tried to make that as a visual connection, you know, even though it wasn't anything that any of the narrators were talking about. And so this kind of leads us into this area of synchronicity where, so, you know, how much intention did you start with? And then, you know, you, you all of a sudden you find all these connections. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious... You know, so like so many of the the theories proposed in the movie seem kind of a little out there, you know, like, and so people can just say, ah, you know, that's just goofiness, right? This is a coincidence. But then seen from a, like a synchronicity point of view, whether or not Kubrick intended it or not, the peace pipe, like that, it resonates. That's like a bizarre, strange attractor, the Calumet can. So, yeah, well... You know, I, I'm happy to let people make of it what they will, but of course, um, things are going to get wild when you're talking about, you know, a horror movie that is, you know, on its, that, that you know, we know was part of the script was inspired, you know, by Freud's notion of the uncanny. So getting into symbolic interpretations of that is going to get pretty wild pretty quick. And we're also talking about a director who, you know, has more control over the frame than most any of his contemporaries, and one who's, you know, incredibly well-read and in some ways, you know, kind of obsessive, um, you know, which I think all makes it that much easier to see intent, even on little details. So the thing, I think the sync videos, and I only have, you know, a pretty limited exposure to them, are really fascinating to me, but a lot of them are drawing on films that don't seem to have been, you know, so meticulously created. So you kind of have to go maybe to another place to try to come to terms with why are why 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 do we find all this stuff in them? Um, you know, I think in The Shining, it gets more complicated because it it is plausible <laughs> that this guy. You know, he's he, Kubrick was as obsessive as you know any of us looking 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 over the film. Okay. Yes. And so one of the details that really really tickled me was the smashed red Volkswagen. Can you give right. our listeners a little background on the differences between the book and the movie? Yeah. Well, in the in the movie, you know, Jack famously drives a yellow Volkswagen. In the book. He drove a red Volkswagen, and you know most people haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that. But oddly enough, there is a moment in the film where you see a red Volkswagen, which is towards the end as Halloran is driving um, to the hotel, and actually see one on the side of the road in a snowstorm that's been wrecked and actually like it's crushed by a truck. And if nothing else, it sort of gives his journey, you know, kind of a you know kind of this aura of doom. But um, Jay Widener is talking about it 
and he's putting it into the context of, you know, all the changes that have been made between the story in the book and the story in the movie. And his reading of that, which, you know, always, you know, kind of gets a strong reaction from the audience, is that Kubrick is using the red Volkswagen to symbolize the book. And by showing it smashed, he's, you know, kind of putting forth the message, the book is smashed, Stephen King's The Shining is left as a wreck in the side of the road. And what, we're, and what we have here is an entirely new beast, which is, you know, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah. And it's interesting well, because... And, 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 yeah. Well, and other people have taken it further, you know, which well, is that... I think um, Stephen that, King <laughs> had a strong reaction to the film, too, where he, he called it a Cadillac without an engine. Like he, yeah, well, famously, he wasn't much of a fan. But at the same time, my own reading, you know, it seems like Kubrick catch, captures the heart of the book um, as far as what's what's happening to Jack. Uh, when I know, you know, one of the things that doesn't come out so much in the movie is, you know, Jack discovers the secrets of the universe – uh, or the the, the the Overlook Hotel, essentially. So he finds out that the Overlook, this grand, beautiful place, is actually dirty. You know, it's it's um, it's got dirty hands. You know, which kind of speaks to both the uh, the genocide narrative in in your film and the Hitler narrative too. So you have this society built, you know, built on blood or or, or whatnot. Yeah. But the book, you know, the first time. Uh, Jack has the interaction with Wendy. You know, he's at his typewriter, and he just starts turning into the obsessive monster that he becomes. You know, right there next to him is is the book of clippings that he had found in the basement. Yeah, which is a major part of the book, but in the movie, you only see it sort of in the foreground of that one shot. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, it's a shot where, you know, Jeffrey Cox is talking about the significance of everything in the frame, but um, he's kind of focusing for the purpose of this line of thought on the chair, on, on the chair in the background. And, and those things, I don't know what to do with that. You know, as far as like those... <laughs> <laughs> because I just can't see Kubrick making those kind of con- continuity errors over and over and over again. Like maybe the impossible window is just not great planning, maybe. But everything else well, taken together. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm certainly at the point where I could argue intentionality um, for or against most any of the things that people bring out. But um, like even Jeffrey Cox, when he's talking about that chair, you know, says. You know, perhaps it was something he did on purpose, like, all right, let's get some takes of the chair, let's get a chair out, and then we can cut between them. But he also, you know, puts out the possibility that, you know, maybe it was a mistake, but in the editing, where he would, but in the editing, he thought and he liked it because it was evocative of, you know, kind of moving furniture in a um, haunted house movie. And in fact, um, if you look at the uh, Stephen King produced miniseries that McCarris directed in the 90s, um, they use moving chairs, you know, as a signifier of a haunted hotel, you know, in that one as well, you know, in a much more um, straightforward way where, you know, you actually see the chairs moving. 
Well, so one of my irrefutable Kubrick moments is in Eyes Wide Shut. There's this, there's a couple, right after Tom Cruise is like initiated into the mysteries, there's an eye of horse that's projected onto his back for just like a, a, a second or two. And so you have to... Oh, yeah, I don't, think I, know, I don't think I know this moment. How does it work? So he, I think he had, when he returns home from maybe after going to, you know, the party or where, wherever he was at, you know, the first time, um, and I think the mask is laying in his bed or something, there's this moment where as he, he walks into, there's a light on his back, you see the eye of, eye of Horus, which is also the all-seeing eye on the dollar bill. Which, yeah, yeah. and I, I don't know to, how to read that if it's like pure symbol where uh, Tom Cruise's character is now illuminated or initiated, like he's the all seeing eye, or if this is, you know, like a conspiracy comment where they they see him, now he's being watched. What, what do you make of? Uh, is, is, it, is it projected on him? Like it from, is projected. Like, on, on so the window? it's not like an airbrush thing. It's like he, there's actually light being projected onto his back for just a second, and you see the you know real clearly the all-seeing eye. Huh. I'll have to take another look at that. And the first thing makes me think of, you know, is again what you know Jeffrey Cox talking about that dopey sticker in Danny that you know before he sees the blood, you know. He's ignorant, and then he is illuminated into the ways of the world afterwards. You know, and the and, and, and the dope is gone. Right, which is really strong, but I could probably create an argument to explain that away somehow. I mean, yeah, yeah, but it's but the um, I think you're saying sort of seems to be evocative of that. Right. That's that's the, that's the first thing it made me think of. Yeah. So. Um... Well, it's funny because this past weekend there was there was an article about um, conspiracy in the Sunday Times magazine, and you know they're saying um, psychologists psychologists aren't sure whether powerless powerlessness causes conspiracy theories or vice versa. Either way, the current scientific thinking suggests these beliefs are nothing more than an extreme form of cynicism, a turning away from politics and traditional media which only perpetuates the problem. Um, and so I'm just, I'm curious about your own thoughts about, the, you know, conspiracy theories and the introduction of the internet to this and researchers. Well, I mean, I know, as you know, I'm old enough to, you know, remember when the internet was you know, first, you know, kind of getting mainstreamed, that I had the naive idea that it was going to create consensus, you know, that, no politician, no journalist, you know, was going to be able to get away with saying anything that would be easily disproved. You know, that the next day the fact checker would appear triumphantly and say that was wrong and this is right and everybody would see it so clearly. But, you know, in fact, the opposite has happened. That, you know, we have so many facts now, you know, that in, in some people are able to, you know, live in, you know, sort of, you know, different different people can, you know, tune into different media, you know, and get the facts arranged and presented differently so that, you know, simultaneously, you know, there's more than one story that that, that, that folks believe, um, which kind of reminds me of the idea. There was, a, I think it was Alan Moore, the, um, you know, the writer of Watchmen and mm -hmm. things, who in an interview once said, 
you know, finding a needle in a haystack is hard. What's harder is finding a needle in a needle stack. Um, <laughs> which, you know, and, and I think maybe it also ties in a little bit to sync, which, you know, again, I'm no expert, but, you know, the, you know, the funny thing is the closer you look, the more support you can find for, for all sorts of things. I know, um, one thing that when me and Tim, um, when we were first tossing around the idea of 237 and asking each other, you know, well, what's this movie really about? What other, what other issues, you know, are kind of relevant? Um, you know, one thing, you know, that I remembered and, and brought up was in the trial of the L.A. cops, um, you know, for, um, um, for the Rodney King beating, um, the defense attorney for the police showed the video very, very slowly, you know, like it was a Pruder film, um, you know, a frame at a time. And at every little detail, they were able to defend, you know, the action of the police officers as self-defense, as, oh, he's coming, you know, he's resisting, he's fighting, he's doing this and that, which in that kind of detail looked very different than sort of the general feel you'd get from watching it at full speed. And I noticed you did that. I mean, that was one of the ways that you were able to emphasize the things that these people were seeing. By slowing it down, you could see those dissolves and say, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it gets really interesting that, you know, you, you, you manipulate the way you look at it and... You can and, and you can see different things, you know, which is maybe why I was so excited, you know, when John felt when I discovered, you know, John Phil Ryan doing his forwards backwards screening. That was you know, the that best if, part too. It was. <laughs> yeah, it was, and if you watch the thing at full length, it's it, it pays off dramatically. You know, not just it's more than a half dozen interesting visual juxtapositions. Dramatically, it does it does a lot of really interesting things. And maybe it spoke to the fact that. You know, as we've evolved in the way that we you know, watch movies from it's a special event and you go see it in the theater once and that's your big chance, maybe you can see it again to, you know, home video and then Blu-ray and, you know, or being able to look at little pieces on YouTube and comment and speak to each other that, you know, manipulating the footage, you know, the way John Paul Ryan did, kind of where you go, where you go from there. It, it's, I mean, and that speaks more to like the world that, the you know, the people that I run around with inhabit, where, you know, they're constantly doing sync ups, where they're taking an album with a certain intention and a movie with a similar intention, and then marrying them together and seeing what happens, you know, and they find that oftentimes things that have real similar intentions are coming from the same darkness or whatever, they end up like really speaking to each other in strange and, you know, synchronicity type ways. And so like the forwards and backwards thing, it, 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 it just seems like at some point, you know, the beast starts eating itself and then, you know, the archetypes really start emerging as far as. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, well, I know skeptics, you know, have, you know, challenged, you know, at, at, at Q&As. And isn't that just like, you know, um, Dark Side of the Moon, Wizard of Oz? Um, as if that was some kind of negative critique. You know, and... Well, I love that the... It, 
the dark side of the rainbow started off it's like oh they composed this music to be an alternate soundtrack of the wizard of oz because this is too uncanny yeah although you know i i think that's been pretty thoroughly disproven but for me i'm totally ready to believe the idea that you know people have been telling long-form stories for thousands of years and isn't it reasonable to imagine that you know sort of rhythms have you know kind of established themselves you know and like five minutes in, things get complicated. At ten minutes in, there's a reversal. At twenty, that it's just sort of some inherent pattern in storytelling, you know, in that it's not going to happen every time, but but often enough, it will, and you, and you can see those patterns coming out, you know, in different people's in, in different people's work, and you know, that's not random and dumb. That's fascinating and amazing. Right, and then one level down is Joseph Campbell saying, you know, you know, at our at our human core, there's this mythological structure that is like the architecture of, you know, our unconscious. Essentially, you got Jung and Freud and and all that stuff going on too. Um, yeah, well, and it's and it's great to bring them into the conversation since you know clearly Kubrick, you know, was interested in both of their work. And then that leads to. You know psychology, and so a lot of times I kind of come from a literature background, and so you know some of these supernatural stories I read more as like psychological transformation, you know, so that the apocalypse that we're really witnessing is is a midlife crisis, you know, um, a, the dark night of the soul, and um, one of the best moments in the film communicating this idea when the individual is facing his own darkness is when when. John Fell Ryan is obsessively talking about the film, you know, a film about obsession, and then his son's cries in the background begin interacting with the soundtrack. Can you talk about your own obsessions? Well, I mean... It's I, a I, real I, meta I, moment in the movie, and it's great. Yeah, yeah and, and it's polarizing, too. There are a lot of people who are, who are like... Wasn't that a mistake? Shouldn't they have cut that out? You know, um, as if I didn't realize it was a mistake or that it was non-traditional way. <laughs> I thought it was part of the soundtrack at first because you know the the movie yeah. starts with these skittering screams, and then you have this this child. I'm <laughs> what do you say well, to a reviewer who are clueless to your artistry? Well, for the most part, you know, I look I. I, I, I try to be a good sport and let people, you know, have their take on it, and unless they're directly asking me a question, um, um, you know, or maybe posting on my Facebook page where I might feel more freedom to be a wise ass. Um, but um, you know, I know that moment, you know, is, is really interesting to me. And some of it, you know, there's, there's, I know, inter- immediately, you know, when it happened, I thought there was something. Inter- I thought there was something interesting about it. And kind of funny, especially when, you know, he says to hold on and we freeze the movie. And, yeah. you know, because I, because on the day that I did the interview, I had to wait, you know, for a minute, you know, for him to go in the other room and, and, and check on his kid to make every audience, you know, watching the movie from here on in also have to sit and wait <laughs> as well. Um, it seemed like some kind of funny, you know, passive aggressive move. But, the more I thought about it, you know, the more relevant, you know, it became to the project, you know, because it's about The Shining, you know, certainly my take on The Shining as much as a lot about balancing 
your personal ambitions with your responsibility to your family, um, you know, which is something that, you know, he's doing in that moment. I'm doing while making the film because I also have, you know, a young son and, and, and a wife, and me working on the film is mostly me sitting in an empty room, you know, staring at a keyboard, hoping, hoping that my family's not going to interrupt me <laughs> while I'm doing it. So, it's, you know, it's very easy to see Jack Nicholson as the worst possible scenario version of myself, you know, also totally unaware whether what I'm doing is, you know, a movie that's going to be interesting to anyone or if it's just, you know, repetitive gibberish, <laughs> no play. Um, so at the very end of the movie, you know, John is talking about, well, it may be that we're moving someplace kind of isolated and I, and, um, I can see that my life is sort of turning into the shining in a lot of ways. I see a lot of correspondences. So that little scene was kind of an interesting foreshadowing of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's also a connection that I kind of made after I made, (laughs) you know, after I made the decision to do it. Um, you know, and depending on who I'm talking to or when I'm talking about the film, I can, you know, ascribe more or less intentionality <laughs> to that decision, which, 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 which is another reason why, you know, I would be skeptical of, you know, seeing any Kubrick interview as a definitive final answer, you know, for the reasons that, you know, anything may, anything in the film is there. I know, you know, I've often, when talking about 237, you know, I try to be frank, but sometimes I'll talk myself into a corner and just settle on being coherent or remember something that someone else, you know, might have said about the movie that sounded better and steal it. Um, (laughs) um, You know, which, you know, which unless I'm the worst, most dishonest person in the world, it seems like pretty good evidence that, you know, what the filmmaker says is interesting um, and helpful, but not always definitive. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's funny how sometimes critics end up being able to get at the, like, oh, the, the real, what, what you know, the artist doesn't even know what he's saying sometimes. It's the the the, the deep reader that's able to extract... Right. Yeah, well, sometimes it's right. They're right. I mean, you can't always be objective and or or, or know what you're channeling. I know um, if you watch Nightmare on Elm Street two, Freddy's Revenge, um, you know, which you know everybody you know kind of pokes fun at as being you know a story about a high school kid struggling to come out of the closet. Um, on the commentary track, the director says, "I totally see that now, but on the day, I had no idea that's how this movie was going to look." Huh. Well, um, before we, we're, we're winding down, but uh, one of the curiosities to me personally, um, at the Stanley Hotel in Colorado where Stephen King conceived of the idea for The Shining, they play, they play the film 24 hours a day on Channel 42. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> what do you make of it? It's crazy. I know, I, I was just out there actually, they had a, they had a festival there, the Stanley Fest, and I was out there, um, we were showing them 237, and actually we did this amazing little panel that had me, Jay Widener, um, 
Nick Garris, who directed the TV version, and Leon Vitale, um, you know, Kubrick's assistant, uh, you know, who plays Red Cloak and Eyes Wide Shut and Boyington and Barry Lyndon. Um, but for the duration of the festival on Channel 42, they swapped it out with a forward backwards version. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> until somebody, in the, somebody, until some regular guest of the hotel complained and said, I think there's something wrong with the channel. <laughs> and the security guard swapped, in, swapped out the DVD. But, you know, that's just, no, that, that, that's, that's, that's an amazing coincidence. But, you know, um, you know it, it, it certainly became kind of clear to me while working on the project that The Shining is some sort of machine that generates coincidences. But, you know, Room 237, to a smaller extent, has also become that kind of thing. You know, when we opened, you know, there were, there, 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 there were billboards all over L.A. For, for the movie 42, you know, the Jackie Robinson movie. And there's a big Kubrick retrospective you know, at our art museum. So, you know, Jack Nicholson's face is hanging from every phone pole in Los Angeles, um, you know, while when, when 237 opened up. When we played in Sundance, we were at a theater in a blizzard on a road called Sidewinder, which is the road that leads up to the Overlook Hotel. Um, you know, and that kind of thing just would follow the movie at almost every screening. Yep, you sound like you're a, a synchronicity nut. <laughs> well, it just happened to me, you know. I, I stepped into I stepped into an open mail hole. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Rodney Asher on Forty Two Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Asher and Room Two Three Seven can be found at RodneyAsher.com. You can also view this film right now on demand on Amazon.com. Although you probably want to see it in the theater if you can. For more information about The Sync Book, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com slash 42 minutes. If you like what you hear and would like to support the show, by all means, follow the link on the website to the donation page. Thank you and have a wonderful Tuesday.